All right, so we are in Jeremiah, uh, chapter 2 today. Uh, Dad talked a little bit about this last week, um, took us down through about the first uh, eight or nine verses. Um, I'll mention a couple things, and that is uh, some commentators have made the point that Jeremiah 2 is somewhat of a summary, or at least maybe a better word would be a sampler, of some of the things that we're going to be dealing with throughout the book, right? So there's samples of idolatry, there's um, samples of uh, breaking relationship with God, uh, going, um, uh, you know, your way rather than God's way. Some of those themes will carry on throughout the rest of the book, and they're definitely highlighted here. Uh, just to pick up a couple things from last week, uh, in verses uh, 1 through 3, and I'll start. It says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. Now, I'll, I'll stop there because as you go through this chapter, uh, there's a lot of poetry, and there's a lot of shifting language in terms of who is being spoken to, but whether it's Jerusalem, like in this verse, or Israel, as it is in, in verse 3, or sometimes it'll say Judah, um, all talking about the same group of people. This is, these are God's people. Sometimes there's some subtle differences between are these the political, you know, group of people, or are these all those people who claim God as their father? In any event, um, here is the announcement. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land that was not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt, disaster came upon them. Uh, that last verse, um, I, I had to kind of work through in my head a little bit. Um, a couple of comments. Uh, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. So right there, we get a glimmer that the nation of Israel, those are not the only people who will be God's people, right? Here we get a hint of hope for the rest of us, right? But Israel was the first fruits. They were the, the first people that God had gathered to himself, uh, but they weren't the only ones. But this last phrase, all who ate of it incurred guilt, disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. In other words, all those people that were cleared from the promised land so that Israel could be brought into it, those are the ones that disaster came upon them. Okay. But here's the point. God sees this as a relationship. As a relationship. And so you think about that as you go through um, one commentator said you know sometimes we think sinning against God is like getting a speeding ticket no harm no foul you know the state trooper isn't going to take it personally that you were going 65 he's not going to lose sleep over that Uh, you pay your fine you move on that's not how God sees this God takes sin and rebellion and idolatry and going your own way personally 
I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. You get the hint already. It's not like that anymore. So if you're looking for, there's several metaphors that you'll come across. Um, one is judicial, which we'll get right into in just a moment. But the other is um, a broken marriage. And there's probably not a single person in this room that hasn't been affected either directly or indirectly by a broken marriage. And you know there's, there's nothing good about that. Every time I, I hear one of my patients tell me something has gone off the rails, it is literally like a punch in the gut. I absolutely hate it. That's the feeling here that you should get because God takes this personally. So let's go to verse 9, which is where we left off last week. Verse 9, it says, Therefore I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. The NIV captures actually a little bit better this judicial tone. The language here is of a court. The NIV says, Therefore, I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord, and I'll bring charges against your children's children. In essence, God's saying, I am suing you. I am bringing you up on charges. And then what follows is exhibit A, exhibit B, exhibit C. The evidence to back up these charges is coming. And that's just, we're jumping right on in. Verse 10. For cross to the coasts of Cyprus and sea, or send to Kedar and examine with care, and see if there's been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though there are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. To translate slash paraphrase those pagans who are worshiping other gods at least they're loyal to their gods at least they're sticking with them even though they're not really gods at all at least they're faithful you can count on them to keep worshiping those gods but look at you my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit you've got the real thing and look at you. You'll see more of that. Verse 12. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. This be shocked, apparently, there's language there. Make your hair stand on end. That's how crazy and unfathomable and incomprehensible as to what you're doing. My people, verse 13, have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Water in a desert is a huge deal, right? Water generally is a huge deal, but the drier it is, the more valuable it comes. 
around here, we are blessed with what? If you have any friends or family, or if you've been paying attention to the news, west of the Mississippi, and especially um, in the, the western states, they are hurting. They are hurting. There is no water. Have you heard about the, is it Lake Mead that's outside of Las Vegas, the Hoover Dam, and bodies are turning up because the, I guess from mob days, um, because the lake level has gotten so low, they're seeing stuff they didn't see before. Which is kind of weird when you think about dead stuff floating in your water supply. <laughs> that made me think, um, we've talked about backpacking and so forth. Dad's talked about, you know, the people he watches on YouTube. Um, a lot of the people highlight, um, hike three major trails, the Appalachian Trail, something called the Continental Divide Trail, which kind of goes up the Continental Divide. Uh, but then the other one is called the Pacific Coast Trail. And it starts, uh, I think, in Arizona. And those first few hundred miles, there's not much water. But there are places that people are aware of where you can get water. And many of them are, you know, old cow troughs or places that have been cattle. And some of these YouTube people, they come upon and they'll show videos there's this much water in the bottom of a tank and there's something dead floating in it. And they literally have no choice but to dip something down in there, pull that water up, filter it through their bandana, boil it and filter it and drink it. That's what they're drinking. That's what this is talking about. Cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So. The ultimate water back then was uh, an oasis sort of thing, a natural spring, right? A river that continually flowed, pretty scarce. So they would dig down, not to find water for a well, but to capture water that would be runoff or where they could store water. It's limestone. Limestone is porous. It doesn't hold it. So they would have to get down there and plaster it with something that was impervious so that it would hold the water. Maintaining a cistern was a big deal. It was always cracking and leaking. And that's what it says. They hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Um, I've been exposed a little bit to um, kind of the uh, American version of this. Um, on Mother's Day, Dad mentioned uh, his mom and mom's mom. Um, mom's mom lived in East Texas, and there was a back porch, which I think had been added onto the house. Correct me if I get any of this wrong. Their water came from a well that I think was a hand-dug well. But when electricity came along, they had put a pipe down in there, so at least they could pump the water up out. And most, though not all the time, it had water. Some of the time, the pump actually worked. I don't know, we were at that house maybe a, in my growing up days, maybe a dozen times. I bet a third of those was me and daddy underneath the house working on the pump. I remember that vividly. In my hometown, Kentwood, Louisiana, 
Long before we were known as a home of Britney Spears, we were known as the home of Kentwood Springwater. Long before there was Aquafina or Dasani or all these other waters that it's silly um, how much bottled water we buy. In fact, I had a running joke with myself about for about two years, somewhere I, I had bought a bottle of water. <clears throat> it was called Smart Water. Have you seen these? I filled that thing up from the tap every day for about two years until I lost the lid. And I thought to myself, who's got the smart water? <laughs> I've got the smart water. In any event, in our town, New Orleans has always had bad water. Because they get what comes from the Mississippi that a thousand miles of people have dumped their junk in. So New Orleans had a need for good water. Kentwood had an artesian well, an underground river where literally all somebody had to do years ago was shove a pipe in the ground and it just came up with force. All that could be pumped into a railroad car was pumped into a railroad car and shipped down to New Orleans where they bottled the water. If the power went out and our pump went out, you didn't have water, you could drive into town and the overflow was routed through a pipe about this big and it just came out. Anybody in the world could come up there, fill whatever the container they want and walk off with some of the best water in the world. And that's not just my opinion. Those are people who'd had it tested. I'll stop about the water. There's tons of stories. But that's the difference here, y'all. This is the fountain of living waters, God's artesian well, figuratively, that they didn't have to work for, they didn't have to do anything but receive it. And he said, you know what? You decided you'd rather have sludge than what I'm getting. Crazy. Verse 14, is Israel a slave, a home-born servant? The lions have roared against him. These are the lions. This is Assyria to the north, Egypt to the south. Verse 16, moreover, the men of Memphis and Tophanes have shaved the crown of your head. These are the Egyptians. They would make raids into the southern area, and the shaving of the head means a lot of things. They would capture land, and the best hillsides would get grazed down, so that was being shaved down by the, the cattle that, that was grazing. Uh, also, they would capture people and take them, so you lost people, leadership, and then the shaved head is just, you know, a, a sign of shame. Verse 17, have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord who led you in the way? Verse 18, and now what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Things were kind of rough with the nation of Judah. And rather than trust in God, they were trying to make treaties with Egypt and with Assyria. And God's like, instead of letting me take care of you, you're trying to negotiate this yourself. 
as you can imagine, this is not going to go well. Let's skip on down to verse 20. Um, the ESV that I use, the New American that Pastor Bobby uses and Dad uses, says, for long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said I will not serve. So the way to interpret it in that way is um, I set you free from slavery. Okay? Many commentators, however, prefer the NIV version, which reads this way. Long ago you broke off your yoke and tore off your bonds and said I will not serve you. So there are going to be four or five pictures of how the nation of Israel has separated itself from God. And that's why they like this, you know, you broke your yoke. You know, you, you broke the relationship. So different ways to look at it. They're both valid. They both fit. But um, I think it is kind of interesting that you can have a couple of very well-respected translations and they, they part ways on something that, as a non-biblical language scholar, I would have thought they could have had this figured out by now. But it both works. It gets bad, though. You broke your yoke, you burst your bonds, you said, I will not serve, but on every high hill and under every green tree, you bow down like a whore. That's the ESV version, I'm not paraphrasing. Harlot, New American, um, prostitute, NIV, I think. You get the idea. Baal worship was handled up in the trees on the hills. If you wanted to worship Baal, you went up on the hill and you hung out with the prostitutes who were basically, quote, servants of Baal. So he says, on every high hill, not only did you break your relationship with me, on every high hill, under every green tree, you bowed down like a whore. I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. The, the phrasing there is, apparently there was, a, there was a region that was known for its wine. Really good wine. I said, but then you've turned to degenerate and become a wild vine. Verse 22 made me think of Macbeth. Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord. Verse 23, how can you say, I'm not unclean, I've not gone after the bales, but look at what you did in the valley, or look at your way in the valley and know what you've done. You know what happened in the valley? Dad talked about abortion, was it last week? In the valleys when they offered child sacrifice. The people of God offered child sacrifice. We'll see it more in chapter 7. The imagery is pretty stark. If this was made for TV, we wouldn't want our kids to watch it. Right? There'd be whoring up on the mountainside. Look at this. 
You're a restless young camel running here and there, a wild donkey used to the wilderness, in heat, sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? You're like an animal in heat looking to hook up. You're looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places. Skip on down, verse 26. As a thief is shamed when caught, so that the house of Israel shall be shamed. They, their kings, their officials, their priests and prophets, who say to a tree, you're my father, and to a stone, you gave me birth. For they have turned their back to me and not their face. It, it was lost on me until I saw this, this um, how messed up the prophets were. They didn't even get their idol worship right. The tree was considered the female deity. The stone pillar was considered the male deity. They're not even doing it right. You say to a tree, you're my father. You say to a stone, you gave me birth. You're my mother. That's, how, that's just how bad it is. He's like, you can't even worship idols right. And I think this latter part of verse 27 or middle part of verse 27 I think puts a whole chapter in that sale. You've turned your back to me, not your face. How, I mean, that's almost could fit on a t-shirt. Verse 28. Where are these gods you made for yourself? Let them arise. See if they can save you in your time of trouble. For as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah. You've got more gods than towns. I probably don't remember as much about our study of Isaiah as I should. It's been a minute. But I'll never forget that phrasing that said, you've got a I'm paraphrasing badly here, but you remember the one where it says, you've got a tree and you're going to carve one in, in into an idol and worship it, and you're going to throw the other end in a fire. How stupid is that? It's the same tree. Anyway. Verse 29. Why do you contend with me? You have all transgressed against me, declares the Lord. In vain have I struck your children, and they took no correction your own sword devoured your prophets like a ravening lion in other words when I when I tried to correct you you didn't you didn't accept correction skip to verse 32 can a virgin forget her ornaments or bride her attire yet my people have forgotten days without number have forgotten me days without number. This forgotten doesn't mean just you know I don't remember you it's um, it means you've forsaken you've 
you've moved away. This can a virgin forget her ornaments or bride her attire? If you're watching a movie and if they want to symbolize this marriage is over, what do they do? How do they show that? Karen, what do they do? Take off the ring and sling it across the room. Right? If they want to show, in a nutshell, this is over. That's what he's saying. Is a bride going to forget her attire? Is, it, or is she going to forget that? We dress up fairly often here, right? We look pretty nice for church. A lot of people wear a suit every day to work. My hunch is dressing up back then was not that common. You probably dressed up for your wedding day and you might have dressed up for a funeral or dressed down, I guess. But you probably wore the same thing. But that was a special day. Is bride ever going to forget that? No. To walk away from that, you kind of have to do it on purpose. You're literally slinging your ring at God. Here's a little mocking, verse 33. How well you direct your course to seek love. So that even to wicked women you've taught your ways. You're so bad, the whores have something to learn from you. And that's, that's not just me, that's the consistent take of the people that I study. That's what that means. On your skirts is found the lifeblood of the guiltless poor. You did not find them breaking in, yet in spite of all these things, you say, I'm innocent. Behold, I will bring you to judgment for saying, I've not sinned. In other words, you don't even claim responsibility for this. You don't see that you've even got a problem. Verse 36. How much you go about changing your way, you shall be put to shame by Egypt as you were put to shame by Assyria. The Assyrians, remember, had already taken the northern kingdom. Right? I mean, Judah has already seen catastrophe, right? Of the 12 tribes, there's just two left, Judah and a little chunk of Benjamin. They've seen the Assyrians come on in and take the northern tribes. Egypt is in their south, raiding every so often. And they're trying to deal with it by appeasing them, making treaties with them, Verse 37, he says, From it too you will come away with your hands on your head. In other words, this is in shame, right? 
this is what you do when you're being, you know, walked out of your own country, taken into captivity. For the Lord has rejected those in whom you trust, and you will not prosper by them. In other words, all the all these you're trying to to make peace with with these kingdoms, north and south. But the Lord's rejected them; they are not considered acceptable for you and you will not prosper by them these ideas are just not going to work um, they're just it's not going well I think this is a good sample or passage to look at because you can kind of get out of practice reading this kind of poetic language, right? And helping, you know, having commentators to help me understand some of the behind the scenes of what they're talking, we can't, we can't grasp all of the local flavor of what was being said there because there are probably references to there to some things I've probably skipped over that nobody would have caught if you hadn't been raised back then. But we do get a little glimpse of what's going on and the, the imagery, even what we do get, it's pretty vivid, wouldn't you say? But what's the big idea? What's the, what's the big idea? Um, I used to say, I think when we did Isaiah, what is this passage? I look at it kind of as a little experiment that you can do for yourself. What does this passage say about God? What does this passage say about Jesus? What does this passage say about us? And I think if you, if you look at it, what does it say about God? It says he wants to be in relationship with us, right? It is a personal affront when we reject him. He takes it personally, and he does not like it. We have references to Jesus. One of the many names of Jesus, right, is the living water. We hear that it's not, even though God wants an exclusive relationship from Israel's standpoint, they're just the first fruit, so there's hope for us as well. And then what does it say about us? You can easily see that human nature hasn't changed very much, right? Um, human nature hasn't changed very much. We find lots of things that we're willing to substitute for God. And we'll have more and more and more examples as we go along. But uh, sobering, <laughs> to me for sure, um, but that's kind of where we are. We'll see uh, the story continue some next week. We'll see that 
in spite of all this, God wants us back, which is all um, amazing. But that's kind of where we're heading. Thoughts? Jeremiah didn't waste any time getting to the end. <laughs> he really did. All right. I think, the, um, I think the part that he that is personal to God puts it one on one with me. I can look all over the world and see all kind of sin, but God's only concerned really with my sin of him that I need to get straight. And this is kind of, I mean, I can sit back and say if, if, if these people would just get their act together, the United States would be better. But I got to get my act together one on one with God. It's one on one that's important. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. I guess. <laughs> yeah, th- th- thanks, thanks a lot there, Pat. No, that's absolutely true. Absolutely true. Anybody else? All right, well, let's pray. Father, we thank you that, that you have um, blessed us in so many ways. But maybe the most thing is that you've blessed us with your loving kindness that just is so patient and so gracious and I pray that Holy Spirit you would um, apply these words written thousands of years ago to where we are now and to where I am now and that you could move us forward in Jesus name Amen thanks everybody